Hello, and welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you are a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. If you work for a living, this podcast is for you. It contains important information that your perspective, current, or former employer does not want you to know, including the basics of your rights and obligations in the workplace, as well as practical tips on how to level the playing field regarding issues that arise every day on the job. Each future episode will feature an expert on the workplace or a guest who may tell us about his or her particular occupation. We usually talk about the rights and responsibilities of employees in the private sector on this podcast, but today we're going to talk about independent contractors, not employees. Employment lawyers usually receive phone calls from employees who are having difficulties, and most of these employees are non-union, private sector workers. Now, occasionally someone will call about an issue they are having with a company, but they are not an employee of the company. Rather, they are at least labeled as an independent contractor. Other times we get calls from employees in the private sector who are unionized employees. And so today we want to explore the rights and responsibilities of people labeled as independent contractors and To a lesser extent, we'll talk about the protections afforded to unionized workers in addition to the rights that they may have under their labor agreement with the company. Hey, we have a special guest with us today who is an expert in both areas, Liza Newman. Hey, Liza, welcome to the show. Hi, Randy. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Liza Asbury Newman represents former and current employees in matters involving discrimination, retaliation, harassment, family and medical leave, non-compete agreements, the whole gamut of the employment relationship. She also specializes in ERISA cases on behalf of workers and advises employees on union organization. Liza has been named an Ohio Super Lawyers Rising Star for 2020 in plaintiff's employment litigation. Liza received her law degree from the University of Cincinnati with relatively high performance. She graduated summa cum laude. She was also first in her class. I don't know if I ever met anybody who was first in their class. Most of those people don't associate with somebody like me, but Liza gladly does. You know, also, before attending law school, Liza worked in several positions at the intersection of technology and education, which gives her a great background. And she was actually inspired to go to law school while volunteering for a medical legal partnership at the Legal Aid Society of Greater Cincinnati, where she assisted attorneys in resolving legal issues that affect the health and well-being of children. Now, outside of work, Liza enjoys birding and learning about nature. She is also an adjunct professor at the UC College of Law, 
where she co-teaches a labor law course. And Liza tweets about developments in labor and employment law at at Liza A. Newman, L-I-Z-A-A-N-E-W-M-A-N. And she can be reached at by email at enewman at fmr.law. So Liza, before we talk about independent contractors, tell us about this interest you have in birding. How and why did you develop <laughs> that interest in birds and nature? Well, Randy, that's a very timely question because I keep a life list of all of the bird species I've seen, and I've been stuck at 199 for two years. So I am on the search right now for bird 200. What do you mean? I, I, I thought there it. were just like robins and red birds and <laughs> hummingbirds. I, I thought there were like 10 or 12 different types of birds. <laughs> well, so that frame of mind is how I got into it. I was uh, with family at Christmas one year, about 10 years ago, and there were some birds at the feeder. And I asked my aunt Carolyn what they were. And she said, what do you mean? Don't you, don't you know these are dark-eyed juncos? They're here every year. <laughs> dark-eyed <laughs> so My ignorance. <laughs> so I, I thought, well, I I should get to know you know my my neighbors in the bird world that I'm cohabitating with, and so that that's what started it for me. The dark-eyed junco. <laughs> that's tremendous. It it really is fascinating. My wife is a bird watcher and she's got her binoculars out and I'm thinking, what the heck is she looking at? And she says, well, there's a, there's a robin, there's a red crested something or other. There's a hummingbird. We now have a hummingbird bird feeder in our backyard. Oh, that's nice. That's, it's fantastic. Okay. Enough with birding and tweeting and all those things. <laughs> Let's turn to our two topics today, independent contractors and unionized employees. So let's start with independent contractors. What or who are independent contractors? Yeah, so the prototypical independent contractor is somebody who works independent of a company. They typically have specialized knowledge in some area, and they contract with companies to work on projects to apply the specialized knowledge on a temporary basis. So you might think of, say, a, a freelance writer or a journalist. Independent contractors, because they're not employees, are responsible for paying their own Social Security and Medicare taxes, and they don't receive any benefits from the companies that they're contracting with. So they also need to get their own health insurance. Um, the hallmark of an independent contractor is that they retain control over the manner and means of their work. So that's kind of the, the traditional independent contractor, but the gig economy that we have today has made millions of people with no particular specialized skills into independent contractors. And by, by that, I'm referring to folks who are working for companies like Uber or Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash. Um, there are 2 million people uh, driving for Uber alone. So there are millions of independent contractors uh, or people labeled as independent contractors, I should say, uh, in our economy. So these companies, they classify the drivers as independent contractors. And that's really the, the pitch uh, of their recruitment model. You know, you can drive uh, on the side, you can pick up some extra cash. It's sort of this, this uh, 
appeal of freedom. But in reality, these workers are more vulnerable than your typical independent contractor. And this vulnerability is due in large part to the fact that most of the laws that protect workers and regulate work do not apply to independent contractors. So if we were to put all kinds of workers on a spectrum with public employees and unionized employees uh, being on the high end of uh, being protected at work, these kinds of independent contractors in the gig economy would be on the absolute other side of the spectrum. They are some of the least protected workers. Now, we call them independent contractors. Do they typically have like a contract with a company, like a written contract, or is it all oral, or how does that work? Yeah, so typically they would have a written contract with the company that they are contracting with, and those contracts would specify their status as a contractor rather than an employee. Um, And so if you're the kind of worker that is an independent contractor on purpose, that that is your aim, um, that's something that can be negotiated. So you can negotiate, uh, obviously, your, your pay, how you're paid, um, things like that. So that's something that an attorney uh, can be helpful for in reviewing those kinds of contracts uh, and negotiating the terms. Okay. So how does the law treat independent contractors differently from regular employees? Super, super differently. Um, As I mentioned, the laws regulating work generally do not cover independent contractors at all. And Mm. I just want to specify here, the label, and I'll get into this in a couple minutes, the label is not going to be determinative. So when I'm saying the law doesn't cover independent contractors, understand that what I mean is these are folks that are, in the eyes of the law, actual independent contractors. Okay. So- by way of an example, let's take a rideshare driver. So somebody who is driving for a company like Lyft or Uber. Um, so I was thinking about, let's say, uh, my my dad, who is uh, almost 80. Let's say he he's out of work. He wants to start driving um, to make some income. If his application were to be screened out by the company due to his age, he would have no recourse under the um, Age well, Discrimination and Employment Act. Yeah, it's obvious age discrimination. Yeah, even though it is blatant age discrimination, he would not be protected because the ADEA, uh, as as you and George discussed, doesn't cover independent contractors. It covers employees and applicants um, for employment. Another example would be Let's say a driver who's driving 60 hours a week, um, they're not entitled to overtime because the Fair Labor Standards Act doesn't apply to them. And for the same reason, they uh, could end up making less than the minimum wage for their Hmm. driving. Another consequence, uh, let's say you've got some drivers who band together to try to bargain collectively for better pay. Or let's say some drivers go on strike because the company has unilaterally changed the terms of their pay. Normally, if these were employees, that would be protected concerted activity, and there would be, uh, you know, laws that would stand in the way of their being terminated for that activity. But the National Labor Relations Act doesn't apply to independent contractors, 
So under these circumstances, these drivers could be fired for, for that activity. And lastly, um, if a driver were to get in an accident while driving for the company, normally, you know, if that person were an employee, they could get workers' compensation. Not so for independent contractors. They're on their own. So there's just trade-offs. You know, if you're an employee, you get these legal protections. If you're an independent contractor, it's like your own little business and you're mm-hmm. essentially a, a business person. Uh, what about What about something like sexual harassment? What if a manager of a company that hires an independent contractor sexually harasses the independent contractor? Do the sexual harassment laws apply? So they, they don't. Um, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. No, they would not. And I was researching this in terms of rideshare companies. The turnover for women drivers is far, far higher. And uh, one of the guesses as to why was that women were being sexually harassed by the folks that they were uh, picking up for rides, mm. but they, you know, the company didn't have to do anything about it. So yeah, it's, it's really tough. It's a lot to give up for um, the freedom that comes with these kinds of jobs. Yeah. So you're telling us that independent contractors, true independent contractors virtually have no protection under employment laws, but you mentioned the label before. Can an mm-hmm. employer escape from potential liability by putting in a contract that this person is an independent contractor? So no, the the label alone won't get them out of it necessarily. So obviously, you know, there's a big incentive for employers to try to do this because they don't have to pay benefits, they don't have to uh, pay payroll taxes, and if the independent contractor is found a, or if the independent contractor does something wrong, then it's, you know, they're they're not going to be liable for that, but. That label is still subject to, you know, how is the company actually treating this person? So if the company is actually treating this person like an employee, that's going to supersede the contractual label. So, you know, a right. Court, if, it, if, it qua- example, if, it, if it quacks like a duck, <laughs> it's still a duck, right? If, if it quacks like an employee... You may be an employee, <laughs> I guess, right? I, I appreciate you taking this back to birds. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any cases that would illustrate this point to our listeners? Yes, yes. So there's a famous case from the 90s involving Microsoft. And so in that case, Microsoft had its normal employees, but it also had hmm. a subset of workers that it labeled freelancers. Well, that's a big deep had- pocket. Right. Microsoft, that's <laughs> and, a good target pockets, defendant. They better make sure they're doing things right. <laughs> and apparently you're going to tell me they, they weren't doing things right. So tell us about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, the, those pockets ended up being emptied in this case. Um, okay, so the freelancers were supposedly hired to work on special projects rather than to work indefinitely for the company. Um and they signed contracts to that effect. You know, I agree that I'm an independent contractor. I agree that I'm not entitled to participate in Microsoft's employee benefit uh, plans and so on and so forth. But Microsoft failed to treat them like independent contractors 
they basically just integrated them into the workforce. So Hmm. these so-called freelancers shared supervisors with regular employees. Hmm. They worked on the same projects. They didn't have much independence at all. Uh, Even their equipment and supplies were given to them by Microsoft. So they were really the label was the only thing about them that resembled an independent contractor. And so this all uh, came to a head when the IRS audited Microsoft um, and it found that it had been misclassifying these freelancers. And as a result, they owed a lot in taxes. Oops. Because they, (laughs) yeah, because they hadn't been, you know, paying FICA for these employees or, you know, paying into unemployment for these employees. Uh, And also they, Microsoft ended up being on the hook for overtime. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And actually another, a group sort of within this group ended up contesting their eligibility for benefits. As you mentioned, I'm... um, an ERISA fan. And so they brought a lawsuit under ERISA to recover benefits because they said, well, we should have been getting, um, you know, uh, employer contributions to a 401k plan all this time. And uh, they ended up winning that case. So then Microsoft was on the hook for all of these back benefits as well. I'll bet some hotshot lawyer drafted that independent contractor agreement and probably told <laughs> told somebody at Microsoft, "Hey, don't worry about it. We're protected. We're we're making them sign deals that say they're independent contractors." <laughs> I bet that guy gets no sleep at night. That person. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so the reason that Microsoft lost on on these cases was because the courts don't look at the label and say, oh, okay. They actually look at who is controlling what. So mm-hmm. are are the independent contractors in control of their own work or has that been taken by the company? So who controls the manner and means by which the work is done is, is going to matter much more than a label. Yeah, you know, uh, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for our little episode today, Liza. And, you know, we talk about Microsoft. You know, that's a huge multinational company. You know, I had a case 30 years ago involving a much smaller organization. It was called the Queen City Umpires Association. And this association was responsible for, you know, getting umpires out the, you know, umpire uh, men's softball, girls' softball, et cetera. And actually the issue in that case was whether or not the umpire of a, of a men's softball game was an employee of the Queen City Umpires Association. Now, in that case, the Queen City Umpires Association actually won, and their defense hmm. was that the umpire controlled the manner and means of his performance. You know, they they told him what uniform to wear. They told him what the where to go to umpire the games. But when he got on the field to umpire the game, nobody could control him. So he controlled the manner and means of the performance of his duties, which I just thought was kind of interesting. Not quite as significant as the case against Microsoft, uh, but that employee, well, that that independent contractor actually got hurt doing the game 
you know, doing one of the games. And so the issue was, was he entitled to workers' comp? And the court decided he was not entitled to workers' compensation because he truly was an independent contractor. So it kind of illustrates the point that all of these things are kind of fact-specific as most cases are, I guess, in the law. So Mm, That seems like too narrow of an analysis. You know, yeah, he can call balls and strikes on his own, but that's that's just, well, I don't know. As you know, those kind of disputes make for uh, America's favorite sport, litigation, you know, lawyers can find good <laughs> arguments on both sides. And, and sometimes the best argument doesn't prevail as we both know, yeah. you know, rightly or wrongly. So what about, um, you talked about independent contractors and how they're kind of independent business people, but are they allowed to compete with the company that they're working for, you know, they get a contract with somebody, they're truly an independent contractor. Can the company prohibit them from competing? No, the company cannot. If if they do, then, th- I mean, that's inconsistent with the independent contractor status. So an independent contractor is free to work for any number of, of businesses or companies. Um, the only caveat to that is that they have to honor the intellectual property of of the clients or companies that they're working with. So if they encounter proprietary information, confidential information, they can mm-hmm. exploit that in their business. Well, that's kind of commonsensical, isn't sure. it? So um, a lot of people sign these independent contractor agreements. They go along. Everything's hunky-dory. And then a problem develops down the road and they're mistreated in some fashion or another. Is there anything that an independent contractor can do legally? You mentioned the independent, uh, the Microsoft case, but what would you advise an independent contractor to do that thinks they're really being kind of controlled rather than given freedom? So I would advise that person to seek out an employment attorney to look at the facts of the case and determine whether there's an argument that actually they are an employee in the eyes of the law. So, you know, if, if that were the case, the person should be prepared to talk about, you know, a lot of details about their work because as we've discussed, it's very fact specific. So, um, you know, be prepared to talk about, all of the ways in which the company is controlling your work, even down to the supplies that you use, because those are the factors that a a court's going to look at to determine that. Right. So most people are asked, you know, in their everyday life, what do you do for a living? If they come into your office, they should be prepared to give a lot more detail about what they do day in, day out who tells them what to do, what kind of reports they have to do, do they have to fill out timesheets, things like that. Exactly. There are probably a million million factors you could bounce around as to whether or not somebody's an employee or an independent contractor. Yeah, and I meant to say this earlier, different laws and agencies use different tests, so it can, that's, that's one of the main reasons you should really talk to a lawyer um, because under 
the Fair Labor Standards Act. It's analyzed differently than it is under Title VII. So mm. it, it can be very complicated. So it's something a, a lawyer should look into. Okay. So I guess a lesson from this is that if, if you are labeled as an independent contractor, don't necessarily believe it. You may actually, if you're treated like an employee, you're basically an employee. Correct. And I wanted to add something that is timely here, which is ordinarily independent contractors wouldn't be eligible for unemployment um, because, you know, there's no employer that they're unemployed from. But because of the pandemic and the legislation that's been passed, independent contractors can apply for unemployment in Ohio. So if you had been um driving for Uber and now all of your work has dried up, I would go uh, to the Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services website and apply. The worst thing they can say is no, but the the recent laws passed by Congress uh, do enable unemployed independent contractors to collect unemployment. Well, that's pretty significant, right? Because of the literally the millions of so-called independent contractors in our economy these days. I mean, there's more and more self-employed people every day. Yes, absolutely. So, Liza, let's change course here a little bit and get back to the rights of people that are truly employees. And we normally talk about private, non-unionized employees in the workplace. So let's talk about employees who are unionized. They comprise about 10% of the workforce these days, down from 30 or 40% of the workforce back in the mid 20th century. Uh, but it's still a significant number of employees. What are the differences in the law between unionized employees and non-union employees? So that's a great question. A lot of the differences are not so much in the law, but in what unions are able to negotiate in collective bargaining agreements for unionized employees. And the most significant of those is the just cause provision that is a feature of virtually all collective bargaining agreements. Mm -hmm. So you've discussed at-will employment in previous episodes, and I agree with you that there are so many exceptions to at-will employment that it's not really an accurate description of the legal landscape. But even still, under that default rule, the deck is still stacked against employees because they have to prove um, that their termination was unlawful under one of those exceptions. So they still have to make the facts fit one of those exceptions. And sometimes that can be an awkward fit. Right. That's always, it's always somewhat of an uphill battle. Right. Because they bear the burden of proof um, for many reasons, really. So in the union context, they're not at-will employees. They can only be fired for cause or for just cause. So that is just a, a huge difference because that gives those employees a lot of job security that at-will employees do not have. And just cause, is that, that's a pretty great term. I mean, you know, who knows what just cause is, right? So what does that actually mean for a unionized employee? They get fired I guess they go through a grievance procedure uh, through their union, and they have to prove they were fired without just cause. But what exactly does that mean? So sometimes the term is defined in the collective bargaining agreement. Sometimes it's not, but 
whether or not it is, it, it typically means that you can only be fired for willful misconduct. So some sort of deliberate, serious misconduct on the part of the employee or dishonesty or theft. Minor performance issues are not going to be just cause unless there's been this pattern and the employee's been put on notice or warned and they've still not improved. Um, Things like being late for work, that's not just cause unless, again, it's something that's not been addressed. But even if the employer feels like it has just cause to fire an employee, they, they still need to be careful in making sure that they are applying their rules and policies consistently. So if they've let it slide that someone else has you know, been chronically late for months and then they turn around and fire somebody else for, for that, um, that employee would have a good argument that that's not just cause because you know, clearly they're, they're not enforcing that policy. So it, it's sort of like the employer waves the right <laughs> to fire them over that. Right. So are, are there other rights that are unique to unionized employees other than this just cause concept that really gives them a lot of job security compared to someone who's in a non-unionized uh, workplace? Yeah, there are a couple rights um, worth mentioning here. The first one that comes to mind is called a Weingarten right. So let's say your boss calls you in um, for some discipline to be meted out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a suspension or a termination, a unionized employee has a right to bring a representative with them to that meeting, uh, which can make a lot of people feel, you know, more, more secure about that meeting. They have a witness and they have somebody to back them up. Um, another right that is particularly relevant right now is the right to effects bargaining. So that means if um, there's going to be a layoff, for example, a union can, they, they don't necessarily get to prevent the layoff from happening, but they can bargain over the effects of it. So they can uh, work with the employer to decide if it should be based on seniority or, you know, they can negotiate severances for people being laid off um, or try to negotiate some alternative position rather than a layoff. So that that's that can be huge. And then as um, as you know, this is not so much a legal right, but a, a benefit of being in a union is typically unionized workers have better benefits, higher wages, um, and things like that. So there's a lot of benefits uh, to being in a union. So what about the grievance? I mentioned briefly the grievance and arbitration procedure how does that work and how is that different than the what, what a non-union employee has to go through in, in order to get his or her job back or some kind of damages from an, a wrongful termination? Yeah. So for a non-union employee, they get terminated. They need to, if they want to challenge the termination, typically they need to hire a lawyer who can advise them on what sort of approach to take, whether to allege employment discrimination or some sort of public policy claim. Um, in, in the union context where there's a, a grievance procedure in the collective bargaining agreement, um, that employee can grieve the termination, uh, meaning they sort of object to the termination and that can 
then be reviewed by the union and the employer. And so the termination can be overturned if it was unfair, if, you know, it doesn't have to be illegal, but just if it wasn't fair, if the employee should be given another chance. And sometimes, you know, if the employer doesn't agree, it can be taken all the way to arbitration. Um, And if the employee is reinstated, then they will get back pay for the time that they were out of work. So how does arbitration differ from a non-unionized employee's right to go to court? What 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 is arbitration as opposed do you have a judge, do you have a jury? How does that work? So arbitration is pretty different. It's less formal than like a trial in court. Um the rules of evidence, the rules of civil procedure don't apply, but you can still have witnesses that can, you know, give their testimony and you can present evidence. Um, the arbitrator is not uh, a judge in the traditional sense, but somebody who <laughs> they're probably an independent contractor with a group like uh, AAA. You know, there are these arbitration organizations, um, and so the the union and the employer will will pay to have this third party, this neutral party, resolve the dispute. Who's probably some kind of expert. You mentioned your dad may not be able to get a job as a driver because of his age, but he'd probably be a pretty good arbitrator. <laughs> I, I've suggested that to both of my parents. I think that that would be a really good gig for them. <laughs> they could be a gig worker as an arbitrator. They could be an arbitration power couple. They could be a <laughs> panel, like a good cop and bad cop. That would, that would be very interesting. <laughs> I think Bob Newman or Mary Asbury, I'd, I'd like them to be good arbitrators. I mean, normally they have some kind of legal background, right? It's a retired judge, a retired lawyer. Not yes. necessarily, I suppose. It could be like a union negotiator. Um, could be a management. It could be an HR person, I suppose. It can be just about anybody can be an arbitrator. That's true. They yeah. just have to be selected by the... They have to be trusted, I guess, by the union and company to make a fair decision. That's right. Yeah. Typically, they, the union and the employer will agree to, to the arbitrator through some sort of ranking process. So it's somebody who the, the parties agree is going to be fair to both of them. Well, I suppose they better be fair because if they're always screwing one side or the other, they're probably <laughs> not going to get selected very much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So they have to kind of even the scales, I I guess. Hey, anyway, uh, so unionized employees have one clear advantage over non-union employees, and that is they can challenge a termination as just being unfair or without just cause. Now, when they're part of a union, though, are they still entitled to use the other laws that apply to non-union employees like employment discrimination, sexual harassment? You mentioned public policy, things like that. Yes, I'm glad you asked that. All of all of these laws still apply. It it basically gives the union employees two bites at the apple because they can challenge a termination under the just cause standard. And if that fails, they can challenge it under one of these laws that you've mentioned. But just cause is always going to be easier for the employee. So if they can't meet 
that standard, it's probably pretty unlikely that they're going to be able to win under another theory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I'd I think I'd probably advise somebody to go through the union process first. That sounds easier to prove that a termination was unfair rather than discriminatory. For sure. One one other issue that comes up here is that collective bargaining agreements can waive an employee's right to go to court um, for, let's say, a, a Title VII claim. So let's just say a, a gender discrimination claim. It is legal in a collective bargaining agreement to force those claims through arbitration. So that that can be a disadvantage depending on your views about arbitration. But in the labor context, arbitration tends to be more fair than in the non-union context, because in the non-union context, the arbitrator is typically being paid by the employer. Um, Mm. The individual worker doesn't have the the cash to pay the arbitrator. The arbitrator has a financial incentive to find in favor of the employer. So that can be really tough. Um, The employer is going to be a repeat customer of an arbitrator, whereas an individual is very unlikely to be a repeat customer. So um, I, I tend to view arbitration in the labor context more favorably than I do in our typical work with individual um, employees. Okay. Hey, uh, Eliza, in previous episodes, we've talked about what is called protected concerted activity. And that's basically when two or more employees band together to improve their working conditions in some manner. Now, if employees do that, if they engage in that kind of activity, unionized or non-unionized, can the employee do anything about it if the employer retaliates against the employees for getting together to improve their working conditions? Yes. So the remedy for that or, or what they should do is they, well, they can certainly talk to an attorney to get advice on what to do because there may be other rights and laws implicated by this, but the thing to do is to go to the National Labor Relations Board, which in Cincinnati is in the federal building, um, and you can file an unfair labor practice charge because um, retaliating against a worker for protected concerted activity, that is an unfair labor practice. So you don't have to be in a union to do this. Anybody can do this. Actually, you don't even have to have standing really to do this. So if I witness that uh, workers are being retaliated against for protected concerted activity, I can file an unfair labor practice charge. Sort of like, you know, giving a statement to the police or something. I'm saying, hey, I I saw the law was violated here. And then the labor board will investigate it and handle it. it. It's sort of taken out of the hands of private attorneys. The labor board prosecutes the case and they can get back pay uh, and reinstatement for a worker um, hmm. if they find that there was an unfair labor practice committed by the employer. Okay. So there, there's a lots of uh, job security rights that unionized employees have that non-union employees do not have. So if a workplace is not unionized, how can an employee go about getting a union? Well, I'd recommend the first thing, uh, would be to gauge the interest um, of other coworkers and form a committee uh, across the spectrum of, of workers 
um, to make sure that different interests are being represented, to make sure that you have broad support in the organization. And then I would recommend that the committee Google around for a union that represents workers in that industry. So, for example, the UFCW represents uh, workers in grocery stores. That's the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. So you could search to see, is there an established union that could help us organize? And if there is, that's awesome because they will lend a hand with organization with getting uh, the election going with the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. If if there isn't an established international union, it is possible to organize an independent union, although that's a lot more challenging because you don't have the resources and the know-how of an established union. But, but that is possible. Um, and that's happening in, uh, especially in like Silicon Valley, there are unions cropping up of uh, people who are not traditionally unionized, like uh, tech workers who make six figures, they still can form a mm-hmm. union um, to to lock down some of their uh, benefits with the employer. And so you, you can then go through the NLRB to have an election, whether or not um, a union is going to be formed as, as a democratic process. So if you if you do go the independent route, that is something I would advise you you get an attorney to advise you on because the NLRB election process is is pretty involved. Right, we all know employers don't like uh, unions. I, I think largely because of loss of control and this whole idea that you can't fire somebody without just cause, and of course you got to negotiate with the union for wages. So employers typically. Don't go along with the idea of a union, do they? <laughs> not, not typically. An employer <laughs> can voluntarily recognize a, uh, a union without going through the labor board, but that's that's rare. The employer is allowed to have what are called captive audience meetings when uh, the employees are on, you know, when they're clocked in, they can have them sit in a room and have a meeting with what are what I would call union avoidance consultants, but people who are hired by the employer to to tell the employees everything that's bad about unionization. <laughs> and the union doesn't have a, a right to, to the same thing. They used to, but that's not the, the law anymore. So the employers do definitely have a shot at trying to convince their employees otherwise by forcing them to go to these these meetings. Yeah, you know, it's really kind of amazing how, you know, in the late 19th century, mid-20th century, unions are pretty prevalent. They've declined substantially over the years, but maybe there's going to be a little bit of a comeback uh, today. Uh, you know, I guess we'll find out. Hey, Liza Newman. That is really good information today. We talked about independent contractors. We talked about whether or not they're truly independent contractors. We talked about the rights of unionized employees versus the rights of non-unionized employees. I suppose we could talk about this a lot longer, but I believe we are out of time. 
So I want to thank you for joining us today and really appreciate your good work. Thank you, Randy. Thank you so much for having me on and congratulations uh, on your successful podcast. All right. There you go. Thank you, Liza. Thanks. Talk to you later. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Terkel that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying, unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com. And freaking out about is all one word. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>